mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, episode 108 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio Technica. I am your host, John O'Peck, and this week we have Ben Nicholas all the way from Montreal, Canada. He's the senior concept designer at Ubisoft Montreal, and what a career this guy has had. It was amazing to talk to Ben for so long. This is, I think, the longest episode I've ever done. It was about an hour and a half, so strap in. It's going to be a good one. He's not only worked in a lot of amazing places, but we touched on some really interesting ideas inside video game development, including crunch and working overtime to hit deadlines, as well as the impact that game development can have on mental health. And he's a very large advocate for mental health and sharing his experiences with bipolar disorder as well as secondary PTSD. So you'll hear all about that. But even just from his career story, he started as a designer at Adidas, working on NBA athlete shoes like the Derek Rose Adidas shoe. Big fan of that and a lot of other cool stuff over there. But then he went on to work at a small studio on the game called Republic headed up by a developer who previously worked with Hideo Kojima of Metal Gear Solid fame. And from there, he went over to 343, working on Halo 5, a much bigger studio. From there, Ben spent time over in the UK at Creative Assembly on Halo Wars 2. And finally, he's now at Ubisoft, working on some currently unreleased, unannounced video games that we don't know about. So weren't able to go into that, unfortunately. But he did have a lot to say about the culture of a studio as big as Ubisoft, the way that they look after their employees, some of the challenges that are faced by game developers and studios themselves, finding that balance between family, mental health, taking pride in your work and putting out a product that you're obviously very proud of. So it's a really great conversation. And, you know, this guy is a super talented artist. If you want to check out some of his work, I'll let you know at the end where you can find his website and everything. But he also does a lot of art just for fun. A lot of sci-fi, a lot of Metal Gear Solid inspired character art that's probably a bit more fun to put into the world compared to the more bigger picture concept design he's working on in the office every day. So there's a whole lot here to get into. I won't talk for too much longer. Here he is. It's Ben Nicholas. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Ben. It's great to have you here with me today. It's awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's all right. I saw a few months ago now, but you were tweeting out about wanting to do more podcasts and I don't know if someone tagged me or if I followed you at the time but we have uh, been able to make it happen so it's great to finally do it and I am interested as Ubisoft senior concept artist we should probably start with maybe explaining what that is and then we'll go into a bit of your backstory yeah absolutely so my job like specifically the projects I've worked on at Ubisoft is basically like it's high level it's working with art directors to establish like high-level vision and building out uh, concepts to hand off to like modelers and level artists and things like that. So mostly like what I work on are props, um, some environments, assets, things like that, and then also helping to basically establish like consistent visual languages. So like I used to work uh, uh, on Halo, so Halo had like UNSC stuff, they had Covenant stuff, things like that, like these art pillars. And so it's very, very similar for other games as well of like we have these established visual languages for like factions or things like that. So part of my job is creating assets while also helping develop like what those visual languages look like. Right. Okay. So does it extend to character and environment design? Is that a big part of it or are they kind of specialized areas that get cordoned off? 
they specialize a lot, especially with Ubisoft, um, because the production teams are so big that more often the case than not, there's like dedicated character concept artists because anatomy is like its own major, major thing to tackle. And so a lot of like my work tends to be like singular assets along with levels. And then occasionally, like I, I also am there to like problem solve design issues. So I'll be approached with, we have an asset and design needs it to conform to like this set of rules. And so a concept artist job, like it's, it's not just to make pretty things. It's also to be able to problem solve and be able to design something mm. that's functional that I can hand off to somebody else and know that it works and know I can know that it fits in with the overall like gameplay requirements. Right. So when you say a set of rules, what would that mean to a pleb like me? Okay. So like, um, if you think about if you think about playing Uncharted, mm. um, Uncharted has a lot of visual cues uh, for where handholds are or which items you can move. So some of them will have like special coloring, like hey, yellow. these sets of wood are painted yellow. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Um, and so. Gears of War, Gears of War used to do this where they would make an entire like area red and there would be a green light at the end. So it's like these complementary colors and the person sees the green light and knows that's the direction they need to move in. Mm. So it's establishing those kind of rules to make sure like the player knows how to move around a level, but also understands these are the things that I can interact with. So they're not too confused or don't get frustrated with I'm trying to press with the play around with this thing, but it's not working. But this one does. Why is that? So it's to make mm. sure like it's really very clear and concise. Okay, so that really sounds like you're involved in kind of the architecture of the level design and that kind of thing. So what happens once that's all established? Do you move on to another project, or are you overseeing that everything that the artists are making around the environments are falling in line with what you've planned already? It is, like, from there, like, once those rules are established, which happens a lot during, like, either, like, a concept phase, like, we have a concept phase, and then we have pre-production, so um, those rules are established, like, very early on, and then then it it's a lot of, like, just concepting assets. Like, we have established these visual languages, we've built what we call a style guide or art bible that says, dictates, here are the rules for our world, this is what things need to look like, and visually, like what they need to adhere to and so then the work actually begins of like we have a ton of assets that we need to concept mm. let's start churning those out so earlier on it's a little bit of of um it's just a little it's a lot of exploration of just figuring out what works for our world what works for the gameplay um and then from there it's actual then it's just like I don't want to call it grunt work because that feels like it feels like that downplays it a lot. But it is just all right. We have a lot of concepts we need to turn out. Let's get through these. Sure. So are you still getting to flex your skills as a you know designer, like a graphic artist in in this work? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Like it depends on from project to project. Like some projects require like my work on Halo required less graphic design skills, but the stuff I've done at Ubisoft have been a lot more like design oriented graphic design oriented so it very much varies from project to project yeah right we might get into this more as we go through your career path but what was it that drew you to this particular role because i like when i think of game design and artwork as an outsider i think of the actual 
assets that I'm seeing, the characters, the, you know, the landscapes and the beautiful vistas. And I feel like they would be the most enjoyable things to be able to, like an artist with a paintbrush, you know, put together. No, I absolutely understand that. Like, I think for me, like what happened was I actually like, I used to be an environment artist. And so I used to just build out levels. Like that's what I did at 343 on Halo 5. And that's what I did at Creative Assembly on Halo Wars 2 was like building out levels and seeing like building those spaces that people could explore. But for me, I realized there was this very wide gap between what I was doing at work and what I was doing at home because I do a lot of art at home with a lot of exploration and I realized like the work that I was doing at home had fewer constraints uh, fewer like technical constraints I could make whatever I wanted it was all about the end result and it didn't matter how I got from point a to point b when you do environment art like there's a lot of constraints like you have to be able to deal with a lot of technical constraints when it comes to things like texture memory or polygon count, or things like that. And so I found myself more drawn to my personal art, and it, it really was like, is a few years back that suddenly I looked at kind of this swath of work that I had made, and that's, this sounds a little bit dramatic, but I felt like my personal art was telling me, like, you're in the wrong path. Like, mm. you know what you really love making. And, like, I realized that I just didn't like dealing with very technical constraints very much, like, I'm an artsy artist. I just want to make art. And so having to deal with like a lot of middleware and having to deal with like the frustrations and limitations of getting stuff in game was just not like my cup of tea. And that's by no means me downplaying those roles that people have because like I know so many incredible environment artists. And I also realized like those people had an artistic and technical mindset that I think I was never really going to compete with because I didn't have the passion for it. And concept being on a high level concept where i could be able to i was able to make creative decisions and work in a way um that i was comfortable with like that's what made me happy mm. you know i think that was kind of a key part of it as well as like when you work as an environment artist like there are times where th it, it depends on the project sometimes somebody hands you a concept and it's like make this exact thing other times it's a little bit more free flow but for me, like, I really wanted to be in a position where I could concept and design my own and really, like, I, I think really kind of, like, utilize my own creativity um, mm. a bit more. That's cool. It's a very long answer no, no. to that question. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because um, I mentioned before we started recording that I asked for a few questions from Twitter. And I had one in particular from Higgins, my friend Higgins on Twitter, Higgins in Japan. And he wanted to know how much say does an artist have when it comes to their own creativity or vision? Or does it just come down to, we want character X to look like this, so just do it that way. And it sounds like from what you've just said, depending exactly on what it is, there's a, it's a, a range of freedom to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's some projects I've worked on where like, when you work on an established franchise like Halo, like Halo has like a look to it. Like, it's got a pretty specific look and a pretty specific rule set. So when I went on there, like, there was, like, there was creativity, there was freedom, but there was, like, a pretty set guideline um, as far as, like, what things look like. Um, and obviously, it's the same case for things like a lot of licensed properties. But there are other projects that are much more free flow. I mean, at the end of the day, like, art director has the last say on whether something works or doesn't work but mm -hmm. i've been very lucky in my career for the most part to have been trusted to have like a lot of freedom and I, I, not everybody has that option like i said it, it, it really varies from company to company sure 
Did you ever sneak something into a game and just hope that no one noticed it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't. It was it was really cool because when we worked on Halo Five, we had a period of time, and this is it's the only studio where I ever saw this. There was a period of time where everybody said uh, it was like an official thing: submit your ideas for Easter eggs, and so <laughs> everybody was able to like like there's there's a level with like a couple Rick and Morty references. My name is over it, my name and the names of um, several close friends of mine from college. We all work together at three four three. Are above some like tanks that have like diving suits in them. Right. Um, I did know one guy. <laughs> I won't say his name or what he worked on, but he did put a <laughs> tiling image of uh, Macho Man Randy Savage in the te- wallpaper texture of a room. So if you looked at it from a certain angle, you would wow. just see his face <laughs> like all the way around the room in a space where like a lot of dramatic things happen. So yeah. Did that definitely... ever get found? Do things like this just go on? Un- I don't un- think it, I don't no? think anybody knows about it. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that is that's amazing. You could um if you ever need to pump out a viral video for some reason just boot, boot that game up and, and you, you know where it is <laughs> okay so let's go back then to the early days like did you grow up through high school wanting to be an artist and particularly in video games man i don't it's weird like not really like i i have a weird childhood because my dad was a pilot and he had done like two tours in Vietnam and then afterwards had taken like a lot of these really crazy jobs. And so there was like a lot of traveling and moving around. But, um, like for us, we moved around when I was a kid, like we moved around a couple times, but, uh, because of that, um, I was homeschooled. Like I was homeschooled from first grade all the way through the end of high school. Um, which is like kind of a wild thing, but as a result, like, I don't want this to sound like sad, but as I, I grew up like a lot of the time on my own, there weren't, weren't a lot of other kids around. And so for me, like most of my childhood was spent like making art for myself. It was art Legos and like PlayStation. Like yeah. those were the things that kind of kept me busy, but I, and, but I also loved writing. Like I loved creative writing. Um, and so I think by the time I was like, I don't know, I, I'm going into high school, like even in junior high, I had decided that what I wanted to be was a journalist. I really, really wanted to write. Um, and I loved writing about politics. But by the same token, um, when I was 13 or 14, a friend of mine, like one of my best friends handed me like a cracked copy of uh, like Bryce five, which is like this ancient like 3d modeling program. Okay. And he was like, yo, you got to try this out. And so I've got this like awful computer that he had hacked together out of like pieces that he had in his garage. And so I was teaching myself 3D for fun. So I still liked making art. I never didn't really consider myself an artist, but it was a fun thing to tinker with. And so throughout high school, like I was really focused on becoming a writer. But at the same time, I was working on the side as being an artist and, and constantly teaching myself also playing a lot of video games and by the end of high school like i like it was a weird time like especially with the state of politics in the u.s at the time like we had been through after we were still in afghanistan like there was the invasion of iraq and like like i became a little bit disenfranchised like i really wanted oh really wanted to write about politics and i had this kind of gut feeling i was like this isn't for me like i don't feel like writing about this is gonna 
be something that's fulfilling. Mm. And it was it was odd that then like I had this realization that I looked at the art that I had done and what I was teaching myself and said like what am I thinking like this is what I want to do like this making video games is what I've been working towards. And so that's when I was like all right like I'm going to go to art school. Like this is this is where my passion is. Um, right. Yeah, so that's kind of where it came from. And like my dad my dad was an artist like my dad like I said my dad had kind of this crazy career where he was flying in Africa. Like my dad worked for the, flew for the UN in Africa. Um, he flew for the government in like Colombia and fought fires uh, here in the U.S. And every to where he went, he was like sketching and had logbooks and things like that. And so I think that was also like a pretty big inspiration for me. There was like a lot of subtle inspirations that I didn't realize were pulling me towards an art career that mm. I didn't really recognize until later on. That's really cool. I think. It sounds like you picked the direction that had you entertaining people and creating something that makes people happy rather than reporting on all these terrible things going on in the world, which is probably, you know, with, uh, I know, mental health being a big thing in your life, probably the right decision. <laughs> no, absolutely. Like, and it's funny because I, at the time, like, didn't recognize, like, mental health issues, like, wasn't a phrase that I used or even, like, understood at the time, but I'm really grateful i made the decision i did because like i also like on a fundamental level like you have to do what you love and like i'm lucky to be in a career that like i couldn't imagine myself doing anything else but yeah i mean it's 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 funny too because like these realizations about why i chose the career path i did like it's only been like the last like four years or so that i understood why like i make a lot of sci-fi art and my dad collects a lot of old sci-fi books so i had all of these like 60s and 70s sci-fi books constantly surrounding me you know mom made art too and they they gave me tons of supplies to make art and it was just all these things that built up like i do a lot of robots i grew up in plane hangers around like mechanical (laughs) parts and things and it's stuff that like i never put together until the last few years it's like oh i was like really set up to do this thing i just kind of had to make the decision at some point that's really cool and so you've decided to study art what was it like for you to break into the games industry what was your first uh step into it man that's a weird one so i um i had a bit of an odd path like i mean with games especially like i think everybody has their own story there's no real consistent way to break in it's like a whole lot of luck i think it's like every other job like it's a whole lot of luck and hoping that a person reads an email at the right time and is maybe in the right mood and Mm, like like planets have to align for everything to work out but my so i i I went to i went to art school in portland oregon and portland has like two like two small studios that do um assets for other studios um, but that's kind of it. So there's like not a lot of jobs. So actually about six months, no, less than that, about three months before I graduated, Adidas hit me up because their North American headquarters is located in Portland, Oregon. So it's like them and Nike mm. are located in the same city. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I had throughout school, I'd freelanced and I'd freelanced for Nike. And so Adidas had hit me up and said hey like would you be interested in coming in for an interview and me knowing that i had a lot of college loans to pay off said (laughs) yes i absolutely would and so 
my first job like out of school like wasn't in games you know i worked i worked as a as a concept designer on footwear and some apparel and i mostly did like basketball and running oh man that's so cool <laughs> <laughs> like if your career had gone down a different path i still would have loved to have had you on this show because like when i was in high school or even in primary school like elementary school for you guys i would draw like basketball shoes that was one of my like interests I had my own brand that I, and a logo I came up with, and it was yeah. So that's brilliant. It's it's funny because like I I totally like don't play sports and didn't <laughs> grow up in a sports related household. So it was this really funny thing of like going into this company and being like, it was a weird kind of imposter syndrome because yeah. it was like, do you guys know that like I'm just a weird like sci-fi video game <laughs> nerd, right? Like, they're like, yeah, but you're really good at 3D. It's like, okay, like, then let's do this. And so the fascinating part of that was, like, there is an amazing thing about going into a subject that you ha- that you don't know anything about. It's like fresh eyes, isn't it? It's awesome. Like, I got to learn so much about, like, not just basketball culture, but, like, footwear culture in general. And being like, these people are like super passionate. It's crazy about yeah. this thing. And like, when you like, I got, I find, I understood the feeling that when you saw like an awesome pair of kicks, like you were like, I need those. Like <laughs> those are rad. Like, and it was, it was a thing I didn't fully appreciate at the time because I was very fresh. Like I was super green, like out of college and like caught up in the wave of my first job. Um, but in retrospect, like it was. It was in a really incredible learning experience. Just like one quick side note, it's really funny that you would say like talking about like that was your passion. Like as a kid, is like drawing basketball shoes. Because I remember, I think it was like my second year. I was at Adidas for two years, and I definitely remember this other footwear designer. He worked on uh, he worked on football stuff, American football, and he just just chatting with me one day, and he's like, "Why are you here?" He was like. <laughs> You could be working on, like, Halo stuff and whatnot. He was like, you could be making video games. That's so much cooler than this. And there's always this perspective of, like, everybody thinks, like, the grass is always greener or, like, it's... But it's just, like, completely different perspectives on a thing. Mm. Um, I think the main takeaway, though, is, like, like, something to, like, I... To clarify is, like, there's a difference between artists and designers, an artist, uh, an artist has a lot more free reign to just make something like beautiful. It's not to say they don't problem solve, but it is focused on something beautiful. Whereas a designer is there to solve a lot of problems, still make something like aesthetically pleasing, but be able to solve like technical problems. And so for me, like I was very much like a pretty like artsy fartsy kid in college. So for to go from there into footwear, where it's like look, we have restraints on materials. We have, they have their own visual pillars of like certain basketball lines, like have to look a certain way. We have to use these patterns. This is what's in style for like fall 2018. Like this is the direction that we're going. Um, And so for me, like those two years are like super educational because I learned, I learned how to break away from just being an artist, but to be a designer Mm. as well. Right. And it's funny because, like, in when I was in college, like, I knew people who were industrial designers, and I didn't understand why they wanted to be designers. So I was like, "You guys are like agonizing over whether this line is going to be like half a millimeter thick 
or a millimeter thick around like around this like thing that you're designing and i like couldn't i was like i'm just gonna make robots and then when i got into that line of work i understood like the craftsmanship that goes into that and like the attention to detail is like unbelievable that's cool i have to ask before you get back to games what shoes like what basketball shoes did you work on while you were there i worked on some of rose's shoes uh derrick rose shoes at the time um i was with the stripes on the on the sole yeah yeah love those shoes (laughs) that was actually uh yeah that was some of the first stuff i worked on um and then a lot of my work was um they were getting ready to launch like the boost foam stuff and a lot of my stuff was like you have like uppers which is like your cloth part like that's your fabric on top on top of the shoe versus the sole and so i was doing like a lot of upper designs for that and then they were like let's figure out how to integrate boost into basketball and so it was both running in basketball that i was hopping behind uh and just trying a lot of things like it was in a in a weird way like i became an asset because i didn't i wasn't as familiar with the basketball culture or the footwear culture and on because i was able to bring different ideas to the table like were they all good like god no like (laughs) i made some stuff that like looked pretty terrible and in retrospect like makes me cringe a little but i was able to try things that i think people who are used to they were very, very used to designing in a certain way you know i got a lot of free reign to be able to just try things um but the boost stuff was probably the biggest I know I worked on some other basketball shoes, but I cannot remember. It has been a while. I'm a Bulls fan, so as a as a Bulls fan, those Derek Rose shoes were very much something I lusted after. <laughs> I never got a pair, but I'll have to one day now that I know you've worked on them. That's awesome. No, it's funny because when I saw your Twitter file and it said like basketball fan, I was like, oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so from there, I'm guessing that a games dev job opened up and you entered that sphere. Is that how it worked? Yeah, I mean, what happened, it was after my first year like at Adidas, like I really like, I was feeling that ache, like, I really want to get into games. Um, but breaking into games is, it can be, it can be extremely disheartening. Like, I almost gave up a few times. And there were times where I did give up, where I was like, and I, I had resigned myself to the fact that it was never going to happen. Mm. Um, At least you had a good job in the meantime. <laughs> no, no, totally, totally. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I was extremely lucky because I knew, like, I graduated with a lot of folks. Like, we all went to the Art Institute line of schools that charged us like a a criminal amount of money um and so there were some people who did not get so lucky and like that's a lot of debt like Mm. a lot of us graduated with like ninety thousand dollars worth of debt and so to be set up for failure very quickly after college um so yeah i was very lucky that i had a job that was paying well so i my first year at Adidas, I didn't really do a lot of side art. And part of that was, like, I was very burnt out after college. Like, I had very much worked myself to death and, like, was... I lived pretty unhealthily through college because I was a workaholic. Like, I'd stay up for four to eight hours. I would do as much work as possible. And, like, I did well in college as a result, but I sacrificed a lot. And so that first year after college, like, I was really, like burnt out i hated art i hated the idea of making art and 
it wasn't until the second year that that urge like really came back and so i really really started making stuff on the side every night when i came home and what happened was like i i was on twitter and i randomly saw i follow this guy ryan payton who he had been the first creative director on halo 4 and before that had been a producer on uh metal gear solid 4 at kojima productions and i was like a big metal gear fan and he was like, hey, we started this, I've started this small studio called Camouflage. We kickstarted this project. And I tracked down his email and was like, hey, like, do y'all need an artist? And he, we went back and forth and he said, sure. And like, we, um, their art director got in touch with me. And so I was working at Adidas during the day and then in the evenings was doing like asset work for them um, and sending stuff over. And they were like, they called me up and said, do you want a job? Like, do you want to move up from Portland up to Seattle? And I was like, absolutely, I do. Um, <laughs> was so, that Republic? Yeah, that was Republic. Um, yeah. So I packed up everything and moved up. And like, that was, if you want to talk about like culture shock, not culture shock, but like a really big change in circumstance is going from like living pretty comfortably in Portland to I... I'm on an air mattress at my buddy's apartment because uh, I had a friend from college uh, who was up there. So I'm sleeping on an air mattress on the floor and the studio is in like this semi-abandoned bank in downtown Bellevue, which is near Seattle. And like levels of this bank are like empty. Like there's nothing but like trash. And then this upper level is this tiny little room where like, 22 people at most were like cramped shoulder to shoulder working on this game and it was like the trashiest the trashiest like most amazing building we could have been in and to make it even better across the road was valve so like (laughs) valve is just looking down on us and then friday nights everybody's on top of this like almost abandoned building and like this bellevue is like this very like well-to-do city like it's pretty rich and there's a bunch of like guys and gals in their early 20s drinking cans of beer on top of this building staring up at valve while they're doing like god knows what like looking down to us going what are they doing not half-life 3 no the speculation <laughs> was probably there and it's crazy like bungie or like bungie was like i don't know four blocks away from us you know sucker punch is there like it's all in the same it's all within the same like several block radius um mm. yeah and so that was like that was my first gig getting in. How did that set you up for a bigger studio? Like you went on to work with the Halo games. So it's, I mean, I think it's like everything else in most industries. It's friends. It's friends and people you know. Like I I worked on the first chapter of Republic and we had started work on the second chapter. And I knew that I wanted to do something different. And by then, um, it was like really fortuitous because I was lucky enough when I went to college to make some incredible friends who are still friends of mine to this day. Like this guy, Alex Draycott and Jacob Stone and Patrick Wren. And like Jacob and Patrick, like Alex was working at Sucker Punch and Jacob and Patrick uh, were at 343. And Patrick got the job at 343 first. Then he got Jacob a job at 343 and then they both got me a job at 343. <laughs> and so, uh, like, I couldn't give up the chance, like, to work with friends. Um, and that's 
that was like a really big one that I think that's kind of like a key part of my value system is it's not always I mean work on Halo is cool as hell don't get me wrong but a key part of like selecting a job was working with people that I love and care about like yeah people like you can work on like you can work on a crappy game but if you're working with the right people I I really do think that that makes all the difference and so I really getting a chance to work with some friends was what I wanted. And so I, by that time, like I was doing, continuing to do side art all the time at work, because especially in this industry, like you really can't rely on just the work that you've done at a studio to get you a job. And the biggest reason mm-hmm. for that being is that games get canceled all the time. Yes. Yeah. And you're under NDA or you're under NDA for stuff like a lot of things can happen. And so you have to constantly like, and it's also like, it's a fashion thing for me. Like I make art on the side because I want to. And mm. the byproduct of that is like being proficient opened a lot of doors. And so by the time 343 came knocking, I had a bunch of brand new work to show and to say, Hey, like I would really like this. And so it was a pretty quick and easy process to get in. Like I knew the right people and they like my, they like my work. Um, and so the, yeah, that was like when the big jump happened. Excellent. So that's jumping up from a team of 22 people to how many? Oh God. I think <laughs> including like everybody in the company, I think we had 350 or 400 people. Yeah. It's, like that's uh, a big, big change. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Like it's funny. Like my career has been going from like giant teams to small to huge again. Like Adidas yeah. was like. 800 people if not more and then going to a tiny space and then going to 343 and like i you know i think one of the reasons i wanted to make that change is going over to 343 is like the upside to bigger companies like there's pros and cons to working at a big studio and a small studio right like both have their charms um but it was the fact like it's a hard surface artist like i like making mechanical things that was a studio to do it and it's also like it was a chance to focus on that whereas when you're working on a smaller game like you have to try to wear a lot of hats and that wasn't something that i was as passionate about okay so republic was received well from what i remember but to go from there to a title like halo 5 which you know has a huge massive following not only that but it's you know that industry that you'd always hoped you'd be able to get into and your work's being seen by millions of people and even to throw a bit more into it that artist you mentioned or whoever it was at adidas had said why aren't you working on halo games so it's kind of come full (laughs) circle and here you are what was it like to actually be there with your friends as well and work on this game that was really well received man i like i remember i really do remember those first few days no not the first few days like those first few weeks just being like in complete like shock and awe like it was a really crazy thing to walk around and like once again like to, to see like these friends i love and care about we've been like amazing people and to be like i get to sit next to i get to sit next to jacob who's an amazing artist and we get to work together i get to work with patrick who's an amazing designer and we get to collaborate on levels like it was the dream come true but it was also like you get caught up in it. Like you pass by meeting rooms called like Warthog and like rocket launcher and things like that. And there's statues of master chief everywhere. And like, like life-size statues. And you, 
it it like uh, not to sound like melodramatic about it, but it was it was really really magical. Um, mm. And that's not to say like that changed, but you know, making a game is is really hard. Like it's a thing that a lot of people don't understand. Is like it is making any game is the most. I I think games are the most intense collaborative medium that exists like you like so much has to go right and mm. i think the fact that most people like people who aren't developers i think the some of the things that they don't understand is that it is an absolute miracle that any game ever ships and comes out on a disc <laughs> ever like yeah. and i don't think i don't think that's overstating it like i i, I it's it's kind of astonishing cuz essentially like every game is a giant stack of playing cards it's a house of cards and it could tip over at any minute and like as you're like getting towards the end shipping a game you're just adding more tape on hoping that it all holds together (laughs) and putting it out and like um and it's also like it's really hard work like there's no bones about it it is it's an industry that you i think have to really love to work in because you know burnout rates are pretty high um you know there can be crunch but you know, up and through the end, like, I, you know, there were ups and downs, like, there weren't any production, but it was, like, it was an amazing experience, and I think, for me, the, like, the day we shipped, like, when we, when when that game was in stores and we had a launch event, I, I was once again in a, in a similar position that I was at Adidas, like, I actually didn't grow up playing a ton of Halo, like, I played a bit, but I was, like, I was a Sony kid growing up. My parents always got me PlayStations. And so, um, like, I love the franchise, and I learned to love the franchise like I learned to love working on footwear. And in the same vein that I got to understand why people loved footwear and what they were passionate about, when Halo 5 was out in stores and we did the launch event and all of the steps were there, and we were all in our hoodies looking like game developers, like, <laughs> having, like kids or like teenagers or adults come up to us with like posters and say hey can you sign this or hey can we get pictures with you and like having a full-size warthog there and like all these things like it is and being there with friends like it's one of those moments like i it's hard not to get kind of emotional about it but it was like it was astonishing how i felt incredibly lucky and it was amazing to see that we had made something that in this moment all these people were so like incredibly happy about you know that game got the reviews that it got and like whatever its legacy in that moment it was something like incredibly special to like everybody in that parking lot and like that that i think is one of my favorite things Hmm. that's cool that is really cool and i think you know being able to say that you are part of that franchise is a pretty amazing achievement for someone working on like their second game (laughs) basically i got i got really lucky like it's something there are people that say like oh i just worked i worked really hard and that's how i got where i'm at and like that's Mm. i'm not saying that's not true and i'm not saying like i I also worked really hard but a whole lot of where people get in their career and the things they get to work on not just in games but anywhere is like a supreme amount of luck and Mm. like i genuinely believe that most often if people say otherwise they're usually lying a bit because like i said like worlds have to align and like it just so happened that i was in the right place at the right time to get hired for that job 
And it's not to say I didn't have the skill set. I worked really hard, but I know a lot of people who are better than I am who have not gotten to work on projects like that or are still trying to break into the industry. And like, it's a pretty heartbreaking thing to realize like the amount of just the amount of things that have to align. So I consider myself like, yeah, incredibly lucky that I got to work on Halo as a second game. You seem like a pretty humble guy. So I'm going to ask about your skills because we kind of glossed over the technical side of this and you had to have built your skills up to the point that you were employable by Adidas and by 343 and that side of the industry. You're obviously Ubisoft now. So to actually get from art school to creating these designs and, and artworks and all the stuff that you've done outside of work like how, how did you get so good at it <laughs> because it's it's like i know it's art so some people will it's hard to describe art with words because it's a you know it's an aesthetic thing but did you put in thousands of hours into honing this craft was it something you felt like you had a natural ability in or how exactly did you get to this point i think there's like m- there's multiple answers to that question Number one, a lot of it was putting the time in. Like, it's like anything else. Like, you have to do... You have to do a lot of the thing to be good at the thing. Like, mm-hmm. it's like with writing. Like, it's it's like with writing. Like, you've got to write a lot before before you get good at it. And um, there's this amazing, like, quote from... Um, do you know who Ira Glass is? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, there's this amazing quote from Ira Glass where he talks about finding, like your voice and the act of making a lot of things and they're not good but you keep making it and as you make it you kind of discover like what your voice is and what you can do and that's like that's a huge part of it is like putting in the time but also for me the way I approached it is like I kind of hate practice for the sake of practice Um, in the same way like I don't like working out unless Mm. it's disguised as something else Yeah, like um I don't like strict problem solving unless it's like artistic or visual. Like Practical. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. I need it to be like, I basically need something like sugar coated a little bit for me to make me want to do it. Um, and so for me, a lot of artists, I know a lot of artists I know will make a lot of art to cater to studios. And like, that's what they do. Like, this is where I want to work. And it's a totally valid approach. But what I realized for me is that art makes me happy like the creation of art makes me happy um Mm. once it's done it that feeling kind of goes away but the actual process of making things is extremely fulfilling for me and so making a lot of stuff came out of like it's for me it's an innate need if i don't make art i start getting a little grumpy like i start struggling a bit and so it came out of that and then as I found my own voice, I really, I stuck and I still stick to the principle of I make, when I'm at home, I make what I want to make when I want to make, when I want to make it. And Mm. the reason why I say this is because that means that I am constantly like practicing and growing and learning. Um, But it's under, it's not the focus. It's a byproduct of me doing what I love. And that keeps me motivated and keeps me passionate. Like on a fundamental level, like that's it is I make what I want to make. And I, you know, I, I, 
I do some fan art for things I like. I do some Metal Gear pieces. It's all about Metal Gear. Like, but a lot of the art that I make is my own. I play with a lot of different styles. Like, I'm not. I don't think I'm necessarily an artist where you can look at the style and say that's Ben Nicholas. Like, I I do try playing with a lot of things. I get a lot of passion. Like, I don't like being stale. I like being able to try different things. You know, not that there's anything wrong with sticking to one style, but like I, I really. Yeah, like getting, you know, I don't consider myself, I don't consider myself an amazing artist, but I I got better just by doing what I love. Like, I wish I had like a really dramatic answer <laughs> for you that was like so much more in depth, but it really is. I keep that mantra as something that feels, it's it's very fundamental to who I am and how I approach things, um, especially if I'm going to spend my free time on it. Because if you're not loving it, then like, why do it um mm-hmm. like what's the point sure yeah it might not be dramatic but i think it's probably relatable and practical for people out there that might be in uh, at different stages along that that progression themselves so well and it serves yeah. it serves another purpose as well as like i think you know working in games or working in any industry like you hit some tough times like everybody has some rough gigs or rough patches in a gig and like you you write you make art you design you do all these things you do you like chose that job because you love it and you care about it and in games like games being like a pretty with the game industry being like a pretty rocky place at times you really have to do whatever you can to preserve your passion and mm. you have to take active steps to like preserve your love cuz it's really easy to get I've known folks like this who have been in the industry for a while and like pretty bitter, like they were stuck in it and didn't love working in it and it showed and that spread to teammates and it gets really caustic and unpleasant. And so for me, like I always kind of vowed like, no, like I want to stay passionate and motivated about the thing that I do. And so by coming home and working on things that I love, like I got good days and bad days at work just like everybody else. And so if some of those rough days hit, I have the knowledge that I get to go home and make something that I love and care about. And that keeps me motivated for the next day when I go into work. And then on a practical level, like doing what I do at work at home, uh, like just making art, I get a bunch of knowledge at home that feeds into my work that makes me better at work. I learn stuff at work that makes me better at home. And so that kind of cyclical stuff, like it's, I'm very much a proponent of that kind of, organic learning and organic growth through just making things sure so from halo 5 you decided to leave to go and work with ubisoft you've got this position now as senior concept artist what's it like working for such a huge AAA studio in that kind of senior role by definition and what was the, I guess, motivation to, to leave the Halo franchise behind to work there? So there was a gig in between that. I don't know if okay. you want to get into that, but like I, when I finished 343, I I kept on working on Halo, but I moved to England. Like I moved from Seattle to oh, England. Oh, you went to Creative Assembly. Yeah, yeah, to Creative Assembly. Because right. I knew internally like they were working on, they were working on Halo Wars 2. And for me, like, there's not like a huge amount to say other than the fact that like i by the like on a personal level like by the end of halo 5 like i my contract was up because most of seattle area is like contract workers 
So you work like six months, uh, maybe two years on a project, and like then you go to the next studio, like that's it. And so my contract was up, the game was shipped, um, and I realized like I needed to take, I felt like I hadn't taken a lot of big steps in my life. And so I was like, what if I just, what if I moved to the UK? <laughs> I guess that was like my giant leap was like, I can get a job over there because I know these people, they're willing to recommend me and they're new to the franchise. So having somebody who's just shipped a Halo game going over there would be helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I went to Creative Assembly. I worked on Halo Wars 2. Um, I mean, honestly, the biggest thing I got out of that, the, that, the biggest thing I got out of that was I actually made the most personal art up until then in my career while I was in the UK. Like, that's when I really decided that I wanted to be a concept artist. Like, that's when that role switched from being a level artist at 343 to then wanting to be a concept artist. Um, sure. And so half of my job at Creative Assembly was like visual development and concept. Um, and then the other half was, uh, the other half was like, was building levels. Um, but then like I met my partner there um, who was also, she's a character artist. She was a character artist at Creative Assembly. And, you know, Halo Wars was a pretty quick turnaround. And we both talked and like Brexit was happening. And we both kind of looked at the future that we had there and we just did not necessarily want to stay in england and so i knew an art director at ubisoft and so it's once again who you know uh, you know i got in touch with them we had talked a bit over the years he said yeah i got a project lined up and then we talked and you know they squared away like a work visa for my partner and myself and so we we're able to move over so yeah so yeah that was the quick in between okay so yeah i guess that explains why Ubisoft, but I guess going back to the question before, what's it like to be part of, again, another step up, I'm guessing, to an even bigger studio? Oh man, it is. It's a whole different ball game. Like, it's way different than anything I've ever been in. Because, um, like, Ubisoft Montreal is, like, the biggest out of, uh, out of the Ubisoft studios. Um, mm. And we have, in this, I think in this city, we're at... Could have sworn we're at like 3,200, 3,300 employees spread across multiple buildings. Like it's a really, it's huge. But like, I mean, Ubisoft is also like founded by like, you know, Eve Gimo and like Eve Gimo's like family. And so there is, it's a very crazy thing to work in. It's the biggest, one of the biggest companies I've ever worked at. But there is still like, there is still like a strong family atmosphere and a care for the yeah. employees that i have never experienced anywhere else like things like it, it's it was crazy to come into a place that had an in-house clinic and like right. hey we have a clinic for the employees like we've got cafeterias like we have coffee shops internally like all these things like it's not things that you need but it's things mm. that like I'll be honest, like help a lot because you do feel like the company's looking after you. Um, on the practical level, it was great to once again be in a position where I'm on a team and we're big enough and we've got a budget enough that I can focus on what it is that I love to do. Um, because I I know some amazing people who can wear a lot of hats in game production. Like they could be a designer, they could be an artist, uh, they can be a programmer, and like those folks are amazing. I 
I'm just not one of those people. Like, I know what I love to do, and I want to be able to have the freedom to do it. And so being in a production where I'm able to come in and, like, focus on just being able to concept and design and really be crystal clear on, like, what it is I'm working on, like, that that relieves, like, a lot of stress and anxiety and also just helps me focus on, on what I love. Um, but I'll be honest, like, it was definitely, like, it was very similar to the 343 moment of, like, when I walked around the building, it was like, oh, holy shit. Like, this is... Like, they got an operation going on here. Like, <laughs> there is there is so much. There are, like, so many AC statues. And then you see, like, an old, like, Sam Fisher statue. And, like, all of this stuff. And you see, like, all the games this company has shipped. And, and a lot of, like, incredible talent. Like, a lot of incredible talent and good people. Like, it was, you know, I, I've been very lucky everywhere I've gone to meet and work with some of the nicest people in the world and this place is no different of mm. there was an intimidation factor obviously going into a place that big but i still like yeah i got i've gotten to work with some amazing folks sure and i guess it speaks to the scale of ubisoft that you've been there for what two years is it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. just and, just hit two years yeah and i i feel like they've released so many games in that time but they're not ones that you've worked on you've been working on so i'm like unannounced games that aren't even in our window of coming out soon so it sounds like there's so many different teams and wheels turning and people working on secret projects that uh, it must be just yeah insane sometimes okay i mean i don't even know everything like the studio works on like (laughs) it is a pretty it's it's really really crazy like there is there are there are so many different teams working like really really hard on like what they do like and I think it speaks to, I've never seen, you know, every studio that I've worked at has been different um, mm. and has had its own culture. And it's very, it, it's extremely fascinating. It never ceases to be fascinating to be in a company like Ubisoft that has the ability to coordinate. I mean, we have studios globally and like to see just the sheer production effort that goes into coordinating work on the same game by multiple studios i mean you look at the credits for any ubisoft game and you'll see studios from all over the place and like they coordinate between those studios and they do it really well like they're the only studio in the world that can do that and that's for me like whether i was working there or not like being able to see how that goes and like how much work people put in and how much like knowledge there is to be able to accomplish that this like gargantuan task of coordinating mm. it's it's super super impressive sure i mentioned earlier about your particular interest in advocacy for mental health and following you on twitter there's a lot of of that happening there too which is great and i'm interested like it's hard to think of another way to bring this up other than to talk about the impact that uh, working in game development can have on mental health because it's such uh, heavy hours as we've heard from different cases over the years and it might be different in your experience but crunch you mentioned earlier as well being a real thing and i wonder how uh, i guess the environment that game developers work in can affect people's mental health yeah so so to be upfront so the thing that i struggle with is like i struggle with I struggle with clinical depression and to clear that for some people it, like depression kind of gets thrown around a lot and it's more than like 
just feeling sad like mm-hmm. deep depression is really like it's a sense of hopelessness right so it's that and i have um you know my dad was a vietnam vet so i have what's called like secondary ptsd which is essentially like learned behavior from having grown up around somebody who has ptsd right. which feeds into like having an anxiety disorder as well uh along with like the host of other issues that like we all have like that we kind of deal with on a daily basis like we all deal with like some childhood stuff and things like that and there's a lot of that like um i'm on twitter i'm very transparent about these things like yeah. i i think once again like the answer to that the answer to your question is based off of like two th- there's like it's kind of a two-pronged thing one of them was it was a lot harder for me before I was diagnosed um, because I went through high school and through all of college and through the first part of my career not going to a doctor and getting diagnosed because it, it, I really struggled in college because my mood would like swing up and down a lot. Like right now I'm prepping to go see a doctor to get reassessed because there's some concerns that I might have bipolar disorder and so um because i my mood swings are like really like i I don't get angry i just get like really sad or i'm fine like i'm on top of the world and before i was ever diagnosed with depression or anything else that's when it was the hardest working in the industry because if you don't know what's wrong with you that I'll be honest, like, it's a really heartbreaking and, like, really, like, self-destructive experience because you feel very isolated from everybody else and you don't know what's wrong with you and you don't know, you don't understand why, like, the co- the constant question is, like, why am I feeling this way? Um, and so, like, through college, like, I struggled with, I struggled with suicide a lot, you know? I still occasionally struggle with those thoughts, like, they're just thoughts now, but what happened before before getting diagnosed that meant that i was going into work feeling really unstable and not knowing why and that really like that lack of knowledge takes so much power away from you and so you're and you also don't have a tool set to be able to cope with what's going on so after i was diagnosed i think things started getting a bit easier is like seeing a therapist and also getting put on medication like were things perfect like by no means like no they weren't but it was better because at least i could put a name to what i was dealing with and there's something extremely powerful about being able to name to name what your struggle is Mm. and like what's going on like i think it's like it's like any other illness like if you're really really sick and you don't know what's going on that's a pretty terrifying thing um and so i think over the years as i've been able to like find out more tools to help cope with what i'm doing i what i'm dealing with i i think work has become easier um the other thing that happens is i actually like i personally don't crunch very often um i'm really against crunch i think when it does happen it's it's the result of poor planning like if you have to crunch like a couple of if if you have to work a couple of extra hours in a week here and there or you have like two weeks where maybe we need to stay a little bit longer like that's totally fine but long-term crunch for me is like it can be an abuse of employees and it's also done something of like it's short-term gain you're essentially burning out employees and you're not going to get a whole lot out of them 
after the short-term sprint. It's too much of thinking short-term and not thinking long-term about the health and actual like productivity of a team. Like Crunch doesn't make any sense to me financially and certainly doesn't make sense to me personally. And so I started drawing like really big lines for myself of saying like, these are the hours that I work unless something big comes up. Like I come in at work at this time and I leave work at this time. Um, so for you, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. F- f- for you, is crunch an individual thing or is it often a structural company thing? Does it differ from different studios or is it really, it, yeah. It absolutely differs from different studios. I have definitely seen like places that was like, this is organized crunch, everybody needs to do it. For you as a dev, are you like conscious of that before you enter into a studio's culture of what you're getting into, or do you find that it's I do an I do as much research. Like that's one thing I learned very quickly is like before you enter a place, you do as much research on a studio culture as you can before mm. you go in. Um, like there's like Glassdoor. Glassdoor like has a bunch of like reviews from employee, current employees, and ex employees of different studios. Um, or it's like mm. it's glass door or screen door I can't remember so use that and then it's connections and talking with friends it's reaching out and saying hey what was sure. what was your experience at this place how did you feel and obviously like everybody's different experiences like every studio yeah. I've worked at some people have loved it and some people have hated it um, yeah it's such a delicate issue because especially I guess in the last few months with Red Dead Redemption 2 being such a big talking point and I like that was my favorite game last year but then there's this side of it that's like is what happened good or bad or neutral because you've got people who seem to have been not forced but kind of very you know strongly advised that they needed to work extra then you've got people who voluntarily did it and they're happy to do it and it's they've got their name in the credits now for this amazing piece of art that's going to perhaps give them work for the rest of their life so it's a whole complicated issue that I'm really interested in no it's it is like it's very similar. Like, I'm actually going to go back to Adidas for a second because I had this, like what you're talking about with Red Dead, I had like that crisis of conscience and was one of the reasons I decided to leave Adidas at the time. Like, like I don't know what the status is of how they run things now, but like we had a couple of workers who went to the factories in China and were like taking pictures of the workers like mm. working there and what the situation was like and... I, I'm not going to talk specifics about what I saw, but what I saw like really made me go like, is this worth it? Is me sure. working on this product worth it? Cause I'm sitting in a nice cushy place, like making some pretty looking shoes. And there's this person who is like, there are these people who are in like a really, really rough spot. I mean, they get paid, but the situation surrounding that and how much they're getting paid in labor issues as a whole is something that's like a crisis of conscience for me. It's like, I can't, like, I can't cope with this. And, you know, I remember, like, one of the first issues, one of the first times I felt that with games was with, oh my god, um, L.A. Noir. Like, when the whole thing right. went down with L.A. Noir, like, and the news, like, that implosion after the fact and how, like, labor was abused for that project... Like, that's a game I never went back to again because of that. Like, it left such it left such a bad taste in my mouth over what mm. had been done. It ended Rockstar's association with Australia. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that was our Bondi studio. That was our in, you know, and now it's gone. Yeah, and it also, like, you know, it cascaded because so many Australian studios, like, closed. Like, that's an incredibly horrible thing to happen. Mm. And, like, 
you know, I don't want to pit it all on one dude, but there was a guy at the head of that project that, like, had clearly had some strong views about how production yeah. should be run, and, like, it was pretty, it got pretty, that whole thing got really, really, like, caustic and gross at the end. So for me, so t- to bring it back to, like, my personal experience with Crunch, like, I've been in spaces where they were, where it was mandated. I have also been, I find that this happens a lot, where crunch is suggested and because of that you have some folks because i mean the industry has a lot of folks with you know with families like husbands and wives and kids and whatnot and they got to go home and look after theirs Mm. Um, and you have also people who are like understand their own limits and say i gotta go home or like hey i gotta go to the doctor for this thing or i made an appointment for this and what can happen if the studio if if leadership doesn't handle things appropriately what happens is it gets very caustic within the trenches of the team is that there becomes a lot of subtle judgment between like oh so you're leaving at five today huh or like Mm. people like keeping track of who leaves at what time and who doesn't and like i mean that happens a lot it happens a lot and it's and not a good feeling no no and it actually like it's super destructive to the team because like you like the thing that you want a team to have is cohesion and mutual trust and when things go down the petty road of keeping an eye on what other people's hours are like that gets really it it's super super negative and doesn't accomplish anything for uh i've been lucky because at at ubi like i i mean after two years like i've i've never had a crunch like i've worked a few i've worked extra hours here and there because i wanted to because i just felt like it like i was in the mood i was in the zone and i didn't want to stop mm-hmm. that um but like ubisoft out of every place i've worked has been like the most considerate um especially in terms of like i talked about this online but like you know my dad attempted suicide like um yeah, it was it was last year the year before um and like i took medical time off because then i was like i was struggling with depression and i was going through a whole thing mm-hmm. and like I work at a studio where I was able to talk to a manager and say, this is what's going on. They hooked me up with HR. I went to the clinic and they were like, we're scoring you away for medical leave. And not only did I get medical leave, but then they said, you're not just going to return. Like they said, you're going to do gradual return. It's going to be too much of a shock to your system if you're out for too long. And so it's like the first week you work one day, the next week you work two days and so on. And, And then we'll check in halfway through to see if you're ready to come back full time, and it's awesome. That investment, like I've never experienced that anywhere else. Where that investment is, I have felt invested in myself, like as a professional, with being trusted to do the work. But I've also felt invested by like the coworkers, the people around me, and by the company to say, "We want you to be okay." And you know, it's also it's it is the luxury of being in a big company. Like it's a big company that can afford to do that. Um, and it happens the same with like we don't do like layoffs because we have what's called like interproject. So you finish up your mandate on a game, which is essentially like your internal contract. So you work on X a game for X amount of time, and then once your time is up on that, you interview for another project internally, or if nothing's open, you go on interproject, reset and work in your portfolio and reach out to people, and then you move on to the next project. So you're not laid off after a project, you just kind of get moved around. Um, and so between that kind of security and having 
like I don't mean to sound like a big like Ubisoft like shill right now. Like I, I <laughs> like I don't mean to sound like super corporate, but I, I say these things because it's like for somebody that has the struggles that I do to work at a company that is so invested in those things, like not having to worry about layoffs, not having to worry about my contract ending and things like that is such a lift. It releases so much anxiety that I would struggle with had I been anywhere else. Mm. Um, so we talk about labor issues. Like my experience at Ubisoft has been like the best, but crunch is <sighs> I've done it. I've slept under my desk. Like wow. I, I've, I've done it at, at other studios and like, it sucks. Like, it sucks. You destroy yourself, and, like, relationships suffer. You don't have the energy to do anything else, and, like, you're... That is a thing that I think can kill your passion for what you do. And it's especially... It's often used... I I have heard Crunch being used as, like, well, aren't you passionate about the game? Don't you love the game? And, like... Mm. I... It's like, yeah, I do, but I also know that this is, like, a job. Like, this isn't a passion industry. Like, it's still a job. It's like, yeah, you love the game, but you also love not being anxious and depressed. Yeah, no, totally. And I also, like, I even, like, my my mental health issues aside, like, there's a practical approach of looking at it and saying, I could work. I could work, like, these, like, 70-hour weeks or whatever. But that means that by the time we're done with that, I have nothing left. Mm. Like, the creative... Like, the creative tanks are empty and my motivation is gone, which means suddenly you have, like, a group of employees on your on your hands that can't work effectively because they're so tired and you don't have the people to replace them. Like, it's such yeah. it's such a short-sighted approach to game development. Mm-hmm. You kind of answered this already, but I had Stephen from Neon Lights Gaming ask on Twitter, do you find that crunch puts a strain on relationships? How do people manage work and home life? And I guess that's exactly what you've just it's, covered. Yeah, it's uh, like your relation, like this is something, you know, we all have our value systems and the things that we believe in. And for me, like your relationships with people, like those will those will define your life more than your career ever has. Like I can ship, I'll ship, Mm. I'll ship more games and like, I will be proud of every one of those, but that, that doesn't have as much of a lasting legacy as like the relationships that you have with people at work and your friendships and your family and so on and so forth. And so Mm. I think like you always have to put that, you know, I've, I've got a mantra right now. So the same thing. He's like, I'm not, he's like, he's got, he's got a wife and two kids. He's like, I'm not missing these things because somebody because somebody messed up and and wants us to crunch like i'm just not doing that because like family is the most important part and that and i and i genuinely believe that that's true is like you really have to be careful you have to be careful to protect the thing like what do you value and you Mm. have to be able to draw those boundaries for yourself and a lot of it is being willing to be vocal and drawing those boundaries and saying hey this is how i'm going to do things yeah it makes sense like when someone dies they don't put on their tombstone programmed the boss fights in assassin's creed like they (laughs) they put like beloved father husband to two you You say that but i was i was gonna put on my tombstone like (laughs) hope you like the halo 5 multiplayer maps (laughs) hope you like (laughs) warzone 
Nice. <laughs> I really want to know what uh, what you've been working on, but you're under some very strict uh, agreements, I, aren't you, I, with that? I am. I'm sorry, man. I wish I could talk That's more fine. about it. Can you say what the experience has been like or what people might be able to expect? <laughs> uh, I can say the experience of working on it has been really good. Uh, yeah. I've had actually like the artist an artist that i met who's one of my best friends at the company that i worked on on my previous project we're working together on this one and like for me personally it's been like the one of the best work collaborations i've ever had just like artistically Mm. where we've been able to just knock things out of the park and move and like that like once again talk about relationships like i think about production when i think about game productions i don't that i've been in i don't necessarily think about the game shipped I think about the relationships that I had with people, both good and bad. Um, And so it's nice to be able to like earmark this one as like, man, we just had a lot of fun and got a lot done. So, Mm. yeah. That's cool. So what would be your advice to other artists or people who want to get into game dev? Um, I guess you could come at it from a number of things that we've talked about already. But yeah, what would be your career advice? Because I know that you like to to kind of talk about these things on Twitter and that kind of thing too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, every dev has their own advice for how to get in. And some of them Mm -hmm. are like, this is the way. Like, this is the only way to get in. You can't do that, can you? (laughs) Um, And it is, there's a few generalized tips. And I think this doesn't just apply to games. It applies everywhere. I think for one (laughs) this is so fundamental just make things like if you want to be an artist make art and make lots of it don't get precious about it because the best thing is like i was just telling my partner liz like the other day i was like it's so great because i'm not really precious about my art anymore because if a piece doesn't turn out great like who cares i will make another like Mm. it's not that big of a deal you just make more when you're early when you're earlier on it seems like a really big climb to make to make a piece but you just get faster at it and so make a lot of things fail a lot be okay with the fact that not every piece is perfect and and keep learning and for the biggest thing is like find your like not every i've reviewed a lot of portfolios not everybody who reviews portfolios feels this way but for me i really want to see like what your voice is like, we all have things that we bring to ta- the table, like our childhood experiences, um, the things that we love, books, movies, all of that comes together in this conglomerate to form what your taste is and what you love. And I love being able to see that in people's art. Even if the technical skills aren't 100% there, if I see something that's like, this person, I could bring this person to a room and they would have ideas that I don't have, and how rad is that? Like, have, being able to have that kind of fresh perspective. Now, it's not the case with all productions, because some places, like, this is, like, we know what we want from our artists. We know what we need done. We just need a person who is good at this one thing. Like, that absolutely happens as well. Um, but I really would just say, like, make a lot of art and don't stress about everything being perfect. Give And give yourself deadlines. If you are spending, like, months and months working on the same piece, like, something's wrong. It is better to make a lot of smaller things and build up and to just get faster than to spend huge swaths of time on just one thing. Um, because then if you're spending like months and months working on a prop or something like that, 
you are not prepared for the industry where you just need to be able to turn out things fast. Yeah, that's right. And there's a huge separation between like your personal work that's like crazy polished and looks awesome versus production work, which is like you do your best to make it look good. Sometimes those deadlines are really tight and you need to be able to work quickly to get it done and you need to be able to do it well. Um, so that's a part of it. And then the other part of it is like, it is anybody who's coming in now has so many more tools than like I had when I was coming up. Like you have social media in such a big way. And like, there are also so many tools to teach yourself things. Like there are so many resources out there online to be able to learn and to grow as an artist, but also like market yourself. Like, Belgian Boolean is kind of a dumb name, but it's stuck, <laughs> and now people know me by it, and I'm grateful for it. Like, I wouldn't change it for the world, because, like, you have to brand yourself a little bit. And I th that doesn't mean putting on a persona, because I'm very much, like, how I am online is, like, fairly true to who I am as an yeah. individual. Um, but it does mean, like, I, I, you know, my approach is be yourself. Like, be yourself online be genuine and people really really appreciate somebody who's genuine but market your pieces don't be afraid share your art online even if you feel insecure about it retweet your own art like get it out there talk to people and like make those connections because that's i'll be honest a portfolio is like that's 50 percent, and at times i would say like 40 percent of getting the job <laughs> like yeah. it is important but it is so much about who you know and having having friends who you can say, hey, can you help me out? And, like, if you are friendly, like, I think it's the rule for everything. Like, don't be a dick. Like, as long as you, like, are a decent person, you're polite with folks, mm -hmm. you're genuine, um, people will help you along. Like, and I'm, I'm still, like, look, I have an established career and, like, I still have people helping me out, helping me along. Like as far as like opportunities and you know meeting new people like it's it's a really really core thing like those for me are like the two guiding principles of like breaking in um you know it's you've got to put the work in hmm. that's the name of the podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think that's really encouraging because a lot of people probably get to that point of uh it's who you know and they go well i don't know anyone so i guess that's it but it's work to actually network and make uh, something that people want to get to know you and totally you know, do it that way. And the yeah. upside is like this industry is filled with some of the friendliest people I've ever met. And mm. I, there's a lot of people like a lot of people, including me who remember how rough it was breaking in and it's worth, it's worth chatting with them and interacting with them. And like, making yeah. friends like i also like I'm, on a practical level like not to like shill this but like on fridays i run a thing called friday art share on twitter um and it's basically uh people using a hashtag it's like hashtag art share on fridays and it's all skill levels like people who are established and people who are just starting out their kids in high school who are sharing their art you know it's mostly targeted towards like people of color and like people part of the lgbtq community um and women and whatnot but it really is open to anybody but it's giving voices to folks who like especially folks who are starting out who don't 
who who don't have the resources or don't have like the audience to get attention um, because there's sure. an astonishingly amount of good artists who nobody's paying attention to um, and so if you're out there and you want to break in like that's a thing we do on Friday um, and I know recruiters have been looking at that and um, it's also like become a community where it's easy to get to know people like everybody's complimenting each other's work everybody's kind of lifting each other up and so it creates a pretty positive atmosphere that i think is mm. really important yeah definitely i was going to mention that so i'm glad you discussed it so my last question ben before i let you go this is going to be possibly the longest episode i've ever done which is fine <laughs> because i think we've got on gone into some depth on some really important issues there with crunch and mental health i'm and sorry i'm a bit long-winded with my answers no, so no. i apologize it's fine it's fine i've had jared petty on here and he's like the he's the king of that. So, uh yeah so if you could do anything and know that you couldn't fail what would you do i could do anything and knew i couldn't fail what would i do like anything can it be fantastical yeah, or does it need to be like grounded sure. Like I, we'll start with we'll start with no limits. To be honest, to be honest, man, I would uh, I would go into space. I'd go That's into a sp- common answer. I've had that a few times. Damn it! <laughs> no, like I I think there's this. Uh... So I I think I actually have two answers. I think the first one would be would be I would want to go into space because I think I grew up reading like I grew up reading like these old Heinlein like sci-fi books and. There was a positivity and excitement to his sci-fi um, that, as a kid, like instilled with me. Like, sci-fi is often portrayed as like this really gray and like grimy thing that I don't care for. Like, most of my work is very colorful, and like, I've always wanted to just go out there and like the excitement and the adventure of it all. That's like this childlike, for, it's child in me that wants to do that. I think, outside of that, um, I would love. I would, if I could do anything, it would probably to be direct a music video or a movie. Um, yeah. Music video probably first. If I could direct a music video, uh, I would do it in a heartbeat. That sounds cool. What kind of music? Um, I love like I don't know. I love a lot of like alternative. Like I like Interpol a lot. The National. Um, like uh, Future Islands is like one of my favorite bands right now. And if I could direct a music video for them. I would do it in a heartbeat, like having no experience. Like, would it be live action or would it be animated? It would. It would. Uh, it would almost certainly be animated or a mix. Um, right. But music has always been like a key thing for me that like instills like a lot of visuals for me, um, and I feel like I'm always choreographing stuff in my head when it comes to that, and so I think that would be a thing that I. Yeah, I'd fall head over heels if I did it. That's cool. It's very cool. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been really insightful, really interesting. I've learned a lot myself, and I uh, hope that uh, hope you've enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Like, it really means a lot. And I hope that when your games get announced, you'll put your hand up and say, "That's what I was working on." <laughs> I'll tweet at you, and I will let you yeah. know. <laughs> let me know, and I'll I'll go back and I'll edit, the, you know, the, the tags for this. If you could just that. ADR it so it just says yeah. like right in the middle and gives the title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you for listening and thanks to Audio Technica. You can catch Ben on Twitter at Belgian Bullion. His website is belgianbullioncg.com and there's a whole lot of his beautiful art over there. If you'd like to support this show, the best way is through the iTunes reviews and ratings you can leave, but also through the 8-Bit Patreon. That's patreon.com slash weare8bit, A-T-E-B-I-T, for as little as $1 a month to help make the magic happen. You can follow me on Twitter at Jonah himself, and until next week, keep putting in work.